The reading this morning is taken from Colossians 3, verses 15 to 17, and Colossians 4, verse 18. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now verse 18. I, Paul, write this, greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Thank you, Elliot. Well, good morning again. Uh, welcome again to Trinity Heights. My name is Stephen Cheung. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, let me just quickly recap and bring us up to speed of where, where we are. So last, last week, uh, we began a new series in Colossians, which we've titled Colossians, Violence, Progress, and Peace. And we began by looking at Paul's initial greeting, the way he opens his letter to the Colossians. Uh, the dear Colossians, how are you bit? The dear Colossians, it's been way too long bit. Only he doesn't say that. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. He begins all of his letters this way. And if you remember, we said that if you listen carefully, we'll find this deceptively simple greeting is actually loaded with rich theological meaning and, and political overtones as well. Both. And so last week we focused on the rich Jewish theological meaning of this word peace, which doesn't simply refer to my own individual, personal, autonomous sense of well-being and calm and tranquility and serenity now, but actually refers to a far-reaching harmony that can permeate and characterize every single one of our relationships. So it's this much larger, more robust meaning uh, and concept of peace that Paul was working with. Okay, that's the theological stuff, but this week, tied into that, I want to focus on the political implications of this kind of language that Paul is using. And I want to do that by jumping from the beginning of Paul's letter to the end of Paul's letter. I want to go from that opening, the way he opens, to the way that he closes his letter. The your sincerely bit, the kind regards bit, the lots of love from Paul with a smiley face, with hearts for eyes bit. Because I think that will shed some light on the political dimension of this word peace and the way Paul is talking about it in this, in this letter and in his ministry. So essentially what I'm doing, if you want to understand, what, if you put last week and this week together, we're looking at the brackets of Paul's letter, right? At the beginning, we're looking at the brackets, and my hope is by doing that, we'll understand better everything that's written in between those brackets, okay? So that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, of course, I, I don't think we could establish nearly as much if we were simply looking at the standard English letter writing format of dear so-and-so and your sincerely, but as I said, Paul doesn't say dear so-and-so, he says grace and peace to you. And he, he doesn't say uh, lots of love or kind regards, but in, instead what he says, well, he says this. He says, I, Paul, 
write this greeting in my own hand. That's significant because it means that perhaps he didn't write the rest of the letter. He just dictated it to someone else. But he says, okay, hand it over. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign this. We'll see what, what in a minute. Then he says, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul ends his letter by reminding his readers, the Colossians, that he's writing this or dictating this from prison. He's in prison as he writes this. And so it's worth reminding ourselves that life in a Roman prison was always hanging by a thread. The, the conditions were so bad, you, you, sometimes you wouldn't make it to even your sentencing. You wouldn't survive. Um, the rations were so poor that you had to rely on someone a friend, a family member, anyone, maybe a distant cousin who remembers, oh yeah, Paul's in prison, better take him some food because if I don't, he's liable to starve in, in prison. That's what's going to happen to him. Um, there was very little light. Sometimes they sat in total darkness. Just imagine the psychological implications of that. They were chained up, so very little mobility in the day. And at night, the clanking of the chains would keep you awake. You could never bath. All your basic necessities taken away from you. And the real kicker here, the kicker here is that if you were to ask Paul, so tell me about your time in prison. What was your time in prison like? It's quite likely that he turned around and asked, well, which time? Because this wasn't the first time or the last time. It wasn't the only time, but one of several times that Paul was in prison. And every time he went to prison, I'm not counting the house arrests, that's different. But when he was in prison, this, these are the conditions that Paul was facing. Now, I, I bring all of this up, not just out of some historical sort of curiosity, right? I bring all of this up because I want us to feel the weight of the question that Paul himself would have asked him in his darker moments as he's sitting there in the dark, chained up, his stomach painful because he's so hungry, and he, I'm sure sometimes he would have sat there and gone, what am I doing here again? How, how did I end up here? Why am I here? And so I want to ask, start out by asking the question, why is Paul in prison? And Paul would have said, well, of course, I'm here. I know why I'm here. I'm here because I'm preaching the gospel. I'm preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. He knew that. And so I want to summarize the way Paul summarizes the gospel in, in this letter. I want to take a few words from chapter 1 and chapter 3, where I think Paul is essentially summarizing this message. Uh, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So there you have this picture of this much more robust peace, reconciling all things in heaven and earth to himself and to each other. This reconciliation, making peace, this work of making peace. And then in chapter 3 he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful that the message of Christ dwell among you richly. So he's talking about a work of peace that God is doing in reconciliation. He talks about a rule, Christ's rule, which is a rule of peace. He talks about this calling to live as one body, which is a call to live lives of peace. He, he talks about this, uh, the way this is going to happen is if we let the message of Christ dwell amongst us richly, which that message, of course, is a message of peace. So here's the question. Why, with all this talk of peace, 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 does Paul end up in prison? Paul doesn't actually say why he ends up in prison because he just assumes that his readers are going to know and they're going to understand full well. And so without explanation, he just says, remember my chains. And he thinks the Colossians are going to go, oh yes, Paul's in prison and we all know why, don't we? Here's what the Colossians were aware of. Actually, they were hyper. They were hyper aware of this, hypersensitive to this in a way that we're not. 
something that we're not aware of. And that is that Paul was not the only person going around proclaiming a rule of peace, a call to peace, a message of peace. He wasn't. There, were, there was someone else going around in their world at the time. And that someone else happened to be the Roman emperor. Ah, the Roman emperor. Now that could be a problem, couldn't it? Right? Pax Romana. Pax Romana, Roman peace. You know how long that lasted? Apparently about 200 years, ostensibly, 200 years. It started from when Caesar Augustus uh, defeated Antony and Cleopatra in AD 31, and from then on out, Pax Romana became a vital way that the empire perceived itself, portrayed itself, and promoted itself to the world. Their own self-perception, their own self-portrait, and their own self-promotion was through this message of peace, 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 Pax Romana, Roman peace, over and over again. It was put out there in numerous different ways. I'll just give you a few examples. Um, so there was the gates of Janus. When they were open, there was war. When they were closed, there was peace. And so three times in his reign, Augustus comes ceremonially, ritualistically, to come and close these gates to say, Roman peace wins, Pax Romana. Then there was the Pax stamped on the side of every coin, spread throughout the empire. And so you couldn't, but it didn't matter how far you went, you couldn't buy or sell or trade or do commerce without being reminded constantly of peace in the Pax Romana. There were monuments to peace. There, there was a temple of peace. There was literature promoting this peace. And then there was Paul. And Paul is sat in prison, in the dark, chained up, feeling really hungry that day. And he writes the words, remember my chains. And with those words, here's what he's doing. I'll give you this picture and then I'll, I'll unpack it a bit. What he's doing is he's pulling on the thread of a very cheap sweater and the whole thing comes unraveled. That's what Paul is doing. Because with those words, remember my chains, what Paul is reminding us and his readers is that Roman peace is really the product of Roman brutality. Roman peace is a product of Roman brutality. Uh, the uh, Roman historian Tacitus, he starts to try and imagine what is it like to be one of these conquered peoples? He's writing it about the end of the first century AD, and he's wondering, what's it like to be one of these conquered nations? And he sort of puts himself in their place and wonders, I wonder how they view Roman peace. I wonder how they view Roman brutality. Uh, and so he says this, he says, to robbery, slaughter, rape, because war always brings those things, right? To robbery, slaughter, rape, the Romans give the dishonest name of empire. They make a desert and they call it peace. Those powerful words, they make a desert, turn everything into a desert, and then they call that peace. Pax Romana, the result of Roman brutality. So when Paul says grace and peace to you, when he talks about Christ's rule of peace, when he calls them to live lives of peace, when he announces this message of peace, this is politically subversive stuff. Because essentially what he's saying is, I'm talking about real peace, not this fake peace. I'm talking about real peace, not this Roman peace, which is just really a cover for Roman brutality. I'm talking about real peace that actually brings a harmony to all our, uh, every single one of our relationships. And that kind of peace is not the work and gift of Caesar. Forget him. This is the work and gift 
of God. Let's just hit pause there for a second. So look, let's go back to that phrase, remember my chains. Do you think that when he pens those words, he's simply saying, remember me if you're busy, go about your busy lives, right, on the outside, remember me on the inside, and throw up a prayer for me when you remember me during the day, will you? Send me a care package and make sure you include some of my favorite treats in there, and I'll oh, please send some cream as well for the wrist. That would really help. You think, is that what he's saying? Or maybe, maybe he's saying, remember me, pray for me. But I think he's doing more than that. I think what he's doing when he says, remember my chains, is he's reminding them that his message of peace and therefore their message of peace, their lives, his life, therefore their lives together, his very existence, therefore their very existence as the church of the community of Jesus followers places a huge question mark over Pax Romana. It essentially pulls back the cloak of Roman propaganda under which the darker forces of Roman Empire were at work. Make no mistake, Paul is a political prisoner because he's talking about another peace, which is a gift of another God. And so a, a question that we might want to ask ourselves this morning right, might be, how do our lives, or how will our lives together as we relaunch this church, as we replant Trinity Heights, right? How are our lives together going to place a question mark? I'm not expecting any answers just this morning. It's an ongoing conversation, but how are we going to place a question mark over American propaganda under which the darker forces of American empire are functioning? How are we going to pull back that cloak Maybe another question we might want to begin with is, well, do we understand how, how exactly is American propaganda working and at, uh, operating in our lives today? That we have to ask this question because, because we want to understand how is our own cultural propaganda working in opposition to this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ of peace? How's it working? In other words, let me put this another way. We don't want to fall into this trap of thinking about peace in terms of this abstract, um, disembodied peace, right? Which sounds really good in our heads, but keeps eluding us because in the real world, because we keep getting snowed by our own cultural propaganda, right? Paul's chains were not an abstract idea. He was intimately... Uh, connected to Pax Romana, he knew full well how Roman propaganda was serving and working and operating and functioning in their society and on behalf of the empire. He understood that very well. And so I want to get very concrete and uh, very uh, specific here uh, this morning. I think this is part of the work that needs to be done if we're going to allow the rule of Christ's peace to rule over us, if we're going to, to um, allow this message of peace to dwell in our hearts richly. Okay, so look, they had Pax Romana. You know, we've got, we've got Pax Americana. And, and Pax Americana is not your favorite blend of coffee, right? I saw that look on David's face, and he's like, oh, no, it's not your favorite coffee, David, right? So, so this is, Pax Americana simply means that, that just like Rome, America establishes her dominance, her hegemony, under the cloak of spreading peace and freedom abroad, and by an emphasis on progressive issues of difference and diversity at home. Well, let me say that again. 
Pax Americana means that just like Rome, America establishes her hegemony, her dominance under the cloak of a spreading peace and freedom abroad, accompanied by an emphasis on pro progressive issues of difference and diversity at home. Peace, progress, progress and peace. Now, some of you may go, well, wait, Stephen, you're a little confused here. Surely, what could be further? What could be further from the totalizing empire than the anti-totalizing, anti-homogenizing agenda of a more postmodern, progressive culture? Let, let me put this another way. In other words, progressive culture celebrates diversity. Progressive culture celebrates otherness, while the empire is all about hegemony and dominance and sameness. It, it isn't postmodern progressive disquiet about those very things. Isn't it a rebellion, something of a protest in the face of that kind of empire? Well, no. These are actually two sides of a seamless cloak worn by the empire. It is in fact the story that provides ideological comfort to that empire and justifies its existence. I'm arguing, in other words, that progressive agendas are used as a smokescreen covering the homogenizing forces of empire. So regardless of where you stand, a little to the left, a little to the right, of whatever issue it is, I'm saying they're hijacked and put to use this way. The culture wars. American culture wars are an extremely useful distraction. By blowing these particular issues up the way they blow them up, and by who do I mean by they? I mean every Wall Street, every cor major corporation, the media, establishment politicians, the elite educational institutions, it's all the elites. They blow them up. They choose the issues and they blow them up. They writ large. And by doing that, they're instructing us and they're conditioning us not to look where they don't want us to look. They're saying, don't look over here, look over here. Don't look over here, look over here, please. I want you to look over here. Well, I can speak in generalities, but it's when we start talking about specifics like this, this is where people get to feeling a little uncomfortable, but I'm going to give you some specific examples anyway, one or two. Okay, um, I'll give you this example. This is actually something I was teasing someone over at, at, at dinner last night, actually, but... Uh, um, so here goes. Uh, I'll just summarize this from the work of the investigative journalist Glenn Greenwald. Many of you will have come across him. So he talks about how the CIA are always concerned about losing public support for the wars that they promote. Uh, this is why the CIA actually do their own market research. Uh, one CIA document put on WikiLeaks essentially discusses how growing distaste for wars might actually turn into active opposition from educated urban elites in European cities. So, in that document, they said, counting on apathy might not be enough. They're actual words. In other words, they're saying, you know, we, we normally count on the fact that people aren't going to interfere with what we want to do around the world because, you know, they're too busy with their own lives and, and, and we're fighting this war in some country they can't even find on the map. So just general apathy, right? So, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a big deal. But they're saying, no, we can't count on apathy. might not be enough. We need another strategy. And they concluded that their best asset at the time for selling these wars to European city dwellers, sophisticated urbanites as they are, was to leverage Obama's popular progressive image. Their, their own polls showed that support for a particular action rose dramatically, their words, not mine, 
rose dramatically when those being polled were reminded that Obama had ordered the action, which is why under his administration we could attack Yemen and we could attack Syria and we could attack Libya and we could attack Somalia and we could attack Pakistan. And the sophisticated, educated, urbanites don't bat an eyelid. Pax Americana. That's how that works. That's how that works. American propaganda at its best. Peace abroad, progress at home. Progress and peace, peace and progress. But when we pull back that cloak of peace and progress, that seamless garment of Pax Romani, you know what we discover? We discover human suffering on a scale that you and I haven't ever even come close to experiencing, and I hope we never do. I've said it before, I'll say it again, and I'm gonna keep saying this until it becomes something of a mantra for us, right? But if you want to multiply simultaneously and exponentially, simultaneously and exponentially, death, disease, birth defects, starvation, poverty, refugees, rape, people trafficking, trafficking, environmental damage in the region through weapons release, environmental damage globally resulting from the astronomical energy needs of the US military at war, and start a war. You want to multiply these things exponentially and simultaneously start a war. War is not a single issue. It's every single one of these issues. It's a catalyst for them all. You start a war and it generates all these things more rapidly than any, anything else. And this is the reality for countless millions of men and women and children. This is their reality, and it's all covered over by this beautiful, seamless garment of American peace and American progress. Oh, we're all so progressive, aren't we? And we feel good about it. And today, the price for pulling back that cloak of peace and progress, for daring to question Pax Americana, you know what the price is? The price is exactly the same as it was back then in Paul's day when he dared to question. When he dared to question Pax Romana and place a question mark over that. And so Paul says, remember my chains. I'm going to end with this. Some of you know the story of Julian Assange, right? Um, now, if you, if you know the story, you know this is, this is a strange story with a bizarre cast of characters, including Pamela Anderson and the uh, Ecuadorian embassy in London. Uh, but for those of you who don't know, uh, Julian Assange is the uh, founder of WikiLeaks, a whistleblowing organization that has revealed everything from the torture documents from Guantanamo Bay uh, to manuals uh, to the Iraq and Afghanistan war documents. So Obama and Trump and Biden administration have all gone after him. But it's a tricky situation because the, the journalists at the New York Times have actually used things from WikiLeaks to write their articles, right? Some of you know this. And so because they've done that, they, they've admitted on, on, you know, off the record, you can't really prosecute this guy without prosecuting all of us. And the Obama administration was well aware of this tricky situation. Uh, and that they sort of knew that you can't really convict this man if you, without convicting all of journalism. So, so what happens in May of 2019, a U.S. grand jury added 17 espionage. Now, it's espionage charges, making a total of 18 federal charges against Assange. The 18 charges could result in a sentence of up to 175 years in prison. This is, by the way, this is the guy we're, we're talking about. But they have no case. Actually, just recently, what happened was the, the key witness 
who brought these espionage charges and evidence, came forward and said, I made the whole thing up. I, I invented it out thin air. And, and the reason why he did that was because he is a, a criminal himself, or a particularly vile kind, actually. He's a various kinds of criminal activity, particularly vile kind of criminal. And he invented all this stuff up because he wanted to escape his own prosecution and his own conviction. What's interesting is that the New York Times journalists, who were happy to use all of this stuff out of WikiLeaks to write their articles, they haven't touched this. They haven't touched this story. They recognize this is an attack on the freedom of the press, but the mainstream media has virtually zero, zero content on any of this that I've seen so far. They're all keeping a safe distance. Some of the more striking information put on WikiLeaks has been a video of a US helicopter fire killing civilians in Iraq. The documents have verified that America had conducted secret drone strikes in Yemen. Details of US efforts to get information on United Nations representatives are pushed by Saudi Arabia's royal family to have the US strike Iran. And of course, establishment politicians are saying, oh, he's, he's, a, he's a rogue character who's endangering national security. Look, he's embarrassed the powerful. He's sitting, he's rotting in a prison in, in, in London right now. They're waiting to extradite him, get him to the US so they can do who knows what to him. He's, he's rotting in that prison in London because he's embarrassed the elites, he's embarrassed the powerful because he's dared to put a question mark over Pax Americana. Pax Americana, all those great progressives, peace and progress, progress and peace. I wasn't actually sure if I was going to use this illustration this morning, but I was uh, walking home a couple of days ago, and right near my apartment, I was going to cross the, the street, and I noticed this on, on, a, on a lamppost, jailed for exposing war crimes, and uh, I took that as a sign, which is, which is how I make all my major decisions in life, with, with uh, labels on a, on a <laughs> lamppost, um, and you should too. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so where do we begin? Well, perhaps when we read Paul saying, remember my chains, we remember not just that Paul was put in prison. He's not just saying, hey, I'm in prison and send me a care package with my favorite treats in, right? That he's saying something more than that. He's saying to the Colossians, remember my message, therefore your message of peace. My life, therefore our, your lives together. Our, my existence, therefore your very existence is meant to place a question mark over this Roman propaganda, pull back the cloak of Roman propaganda. So, so let's hear Paul's words. Let's remember Paul all those years ago, nearly 2,000 years, sitting in a Roman prison in darkness, hungry, chained up. And let's take that as an invitation, those words penned back then, as an invitation to see through the propaganda of empire now, to do the work so that we know when we're being played and how we're being played, to understand the way that peace and progress, progress and peace are employed as concepts to pacify us and distract us from the lives that are being destroyed on an unimaginable scale. That's the work we have to do together as a community. It's an ongoing conversation. It's a conversation that several of us have been having on a more formal basis here at Trinity Heights over the last couple of years. And I really want to invite all of you into that conversation, to be part of that conversation. Uh, and in order to do that, I want to invite my friend Raf, who has been sort of our point man on leading some of those conversations. Uh, he's been thinking about this for a long time. Uh, and so I'd like to invite him to come on up and just uh, share a minute or two. Um, thanks. Thanks, Ivan. Um, 
So Stephen and the elders here at Trinity Heights have asked me to help lead what we're calling the anti-war conversations. Um, I said, yes, you know, I'm anti-war. It's kind of hard to be pro-war, I guess. And everything Stephen talked about, I think, embodies the idea of anti-war. And it's such a big thing that the most words we could use is literally anti-war. But I don't want to stop there, because when you hear anti-war, you hear lack of war. I mean, Afghanistan war ended. Are we celebrating? No, we're horrified. People falling off planes, people ambushing airports. I think the most evil in the world right now, getting a red carpet to an entire nation, that doesn't embody anti-war as we think it should. But yet we say, war's over, let's celebrate. Holidays are coming up. So I do want to pivot anti-war as just a war's over, we're good, to an active work for peace. And do everything Stephen has mentioned here to avoid those horrible issues that happen with war. War isn't just, we declared war, we sent a military, things are happening. War happens after victory is declared. Kuwait was liberated. That's great, I don't want Kuwait to get invaded by Iraq and get oppressed by you know, the Iraqi regimes. But what happened afterwards? Sanctions killed half a million kids. And the ones that survived were about nourished for years. That's not peace. That's anti-war, but that's not peace. So I just want to have conversations, difficult, hard conversations, about what that means. You know, how do we fight against war when it's happening? But how do we fight for peace when that's a longer-term vision? It's difficult, it's hard, it's going to be a brain rewiring of what we've been thinking about our whole lives. But I invite you and I welcome you to have those conversations and talks. Um, we're trying to get a couple of groups together. It's not a community group, it's not a weekly situation. You know, let's start with just one session, come together, hear where everyone's at, what your thoughts are, and go from there. Maybe it's a monthly meetup, maybe it's a book read that we do, and maybe it's an action we take. You know, there is a long legacy of anti-war, pro-peace organizations that have lasted for centuries. And how can Cherney Heights get integrated in those movements and work for peace while being anti-war. So that's an invitation. Um, I'm here afterwards, I usually do the breakdown. Come over, tap my shoulder, say hi, introduce yourself, and we'll collect a couple of names and phone numbers and emails and schedule the first couple of sessions.